This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, as the Delta variant marches through the U.S., tempers flash over whether or not to mandate vaccines and masks. The Delta surge's southern swing appears to be peaking, but as it moves north, it's hitting some states just as students are returning to school. America's anger is spreading, too. We will not comply! We will not comply! This time, there's an alarming rise in cases among those who don't even have a choice when it comes to getting a vaccine. Kids. I don't think the virus is targeting kids necessarily. I just think there's a firestorm underway and kids are getting swept up in it. President Biden singled out Republican governors who have openly disregarded federal mask guidance despite local spikes in cases and is reportedly considering limiting federal money that goes to states unless they improve their vaccination rates. I say to these governors, please help. But if you aren't going to help, at least get out of the way. The people are trying to do the right thing. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is threatening to withhold some funding to those school systems who do require masks. If you're trying to deny kids a proper in-person education, I'm going to stand in your way. We'll talk with the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, about the COVID challenges facing America's education system. And we'll ask Alberto Carvalho, the superintendent in Florida's Miami-Dade County, how his district plans to handle the governor's threat. We'll also talk with Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson, who says he now regrets signing a law banning state mask mandates and is confronting vaccine hesitation among his constituents head on. And we'll check in with former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Plus, we'll preview CBS This Morning and the Albany Times Union's exclusive interview with Brittany Camisso. She's speaking for the first time about why she's filed a criminal sexual harassment complaint against embattled New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. What he did to me was a crime. He broke the law. Finally, we'll sit down with author Amanda Ripley. Her new book, High Conflict, examines how, in this age of outrage, we can find our way back to productive conversations. It's all coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We thought we were done with that feeling in our fight against COVID-19 that one step forward could be followed by two steps back. But we're not done. The U.S. is now reporting an average of 100,000 new cases a day, up from 15,000 a day just a month ago. Public health officials expect that number to go a lot higher before it begins to drop. What is different, though, is that during this time of backslide, there is something that we could only hope for during previous ones, a vaccine. 
but 100 million Americans who are eligible for the vaccine have not gotten it. We begin this morning with our senior national correspondent, Mark Strassman, in Marietta, Georgia. Cajun country versus COVID. It's not a fair fight. Louisiana has one of America's lowest vaccination rates. COVID hospitalizations are eight times higher than they were five weeks ago. People are younger and sicker, and we're intubating and losing people that are my age and younger. In two weeks, 1% of Louisiana's entire population has caught the virus. We have no reason to believe in our data that we reached the peak or that we're coming down. We have more children uh, sick with COVID-19 than at any other time during the pandemic. Across America, 71,000 kids tested positive in the last week of July. One in five new cases as the Delta variant stalks the unvaccinated of all ages. The level of sick visits that we've seen this summer, June, July, and now August, I've never seen in 20 years of practice here in Houston. Another negative, surging positivity rates. 20 states are over 10%. More alarming, Idaho, Oklahoma, and Mississippi, over 40%. Two states, Texas and Florida, make up nearly one-third of America's new COVID cases. Both governors oppose universal masking as schools open. We can either have a free society or we can have a biomedical security state. And I can tell you, Florida, we're a free state. Free state, costly approach. So we have basically fashion everywhere in both sides of the, the unit. On Friday, the state set a daily record, nearly 24,000 new cases. Hospitalizations have quadrupled in a month. Deaths have doubled. Despite the runaway spread, COVID's culture war is unrelenting. More schools open this week, more parents will square off about protecting kids. Can't mask the kids, it's unconstitutional. It's child abuse and everybody knows it. Anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers. These folks back there have lost their mind. You've lost your minds. You are the ultimate knuckleheads. The only way to fight against it is we get the shot. Urgency now drives vaccination campaigns. Right behind the Delta variant lurks the Lambda variant. More employers have a new vaccine policy. Get it or get gone, including Microsoft, Tyson Foods, and United Airlines. Here in Georgia, the number of new daily cases is at its highest level since late January, before the vaccine was widely available. Hundreds of them in Metro Atlanta are kids. They tested positive during the first week of school. John? Mark Strassman in Atlanta, thank you. We go now to the Arkansas governor, Asa Hutchinson, who joins us from Little Rock. Good morning, Governor. Uh, good morning, John. Great to be with you this morning. It's good to have you. I want to start with schools and masks before we move on to the bigger issue of vaccinations. But they're related because in schools, those under 12 can't get vaccinated. You signed a bill that was against mask mandates. You changed your position. Why? Well, facts change and leaders have to adjust to uh, the new facts that you have and the reality of what you have to deal with. Uh, whenever I signed that law, our cases were low. We were hoping that the whole thing was gone in terms of the virus, but it roared back with the Delta variant. And whenever you know we're pushing the vaccines out, but those under 12 
uh, cannot get vaccinated in the schools. And so I realized that we needed to have more options for our local school districts to protect those children. And so I asked the legislature to redo the law that uh, prohibited uh, those uh, requirements or those options for the school districts to protect the children. And so uh, it was an error to sign that law. I, I admit that. Uh, thank goodness uh, if the legislature did not act this week, which they didn't, uh, the court stepped in and held that as unconstitutional. And now we have that local flexibility for schools to make their decision to protect the children based upon uh, the unique circumstances of their district. When you say facts change, do you see something in the last few weeks, particularly with respect to those under 12 who are in hospitals who are getting COVID, did you see and learn more about the way in which the Delta variant is affecting that specific part of your community? Uh, we have, and uh, part of it is the, that the Delta variant is so transmissible uh, that it affects every population. The uh, higher age group populations have been vaccinated, so we're seeing 40-year-olds in the hospital and on vents, and, and then it goes down, and while the children are less susceptible to it and have less at risk, uh, still a small number of children uh, find themselves in the hospital. We've had uh, over uh, 24 in our children's hospital. We've had three adolescents die. Uh, they couldn't be vaccinated. And, and so I look at that and I say, that uh, we've got to do everything we can to protect those children. Everybody else can be vaccinated and are pushing those vaccinations. We don't need uh, other stringent measures there because vaccine is their solution. But for those under 12, we want them to go to school and we need to have that flexibility because they do have some risk. I want to get to the vaccine solution in a moment, but quickly about the Marion School District. I think there are about 900 students and teachers in quarantine. Do you feel like that wouldn't have happened if the school district had had the freedom of local control and the ability to have a mask mandate in that school district? Well, if we would have uh, had uh, more vaccines out, those numbers would have been less. But it illustrates the point that if we're going to have a successful school year, uh, school districts like Marion need to have that option to uh, require masks for those lower grades or make the decision that's suitable for their community. Uh, but let me emphasize a point here that ordinarily you have about 2.5 contacts from one exposure that has to be quarantined. But in the school environment, it was more like 18 to 1. And so that's why we had so many that were quarantined. And you can't have a successful school year with that kind of exposure in the school. And so vaccines, as well as flexibility of the local school district, would be the key in my judgment. Last time you were on the program, Arkansas was 46th in the nation in terms of first uh, vaccinations. It has now risen to 38th in the nation, so it has gotten better. 60% of Arkansans are now uh, gotten at least one shot. What accounts for that improvement? Well, two things. Uh, we did start our community conversations, which are town halls that I've been to over 12 cities, and those honest conversations from skeptics to trusted advisors in the community has spurred action to increase vaccination rates, but even more significantly, the risk factor is at play. And people see the hospitalizations up, they see the cases, they see what happens to their neighbors, they're worried about it, they're going out and getting vaccinated. We wanna to continue to mount that campaign to engage 
uh, our local communities. Hopefully we can be successful and continue that increase in our vaccination rate. That's the only way out of it. it. Last time you were on, you said if incentives don't work, reality will, and it seems to have kicked in. When you have these conversations in the community, a new Kaiser Foundation poll found that half of those who are unvaccinated say that they're more worried about the vaccine than getting sick. When that comes up in your conversations, what do you say to people? Well, first of all, it's not what the government says, and I recognize uh, that's not going to be the answer that is needed or is persuasive. Uh, but I will call on a local physician that they know, that they trust in their community, and ask, what do you say about that? And that trusted advisor is more persuasive and fact-oriented and helps to dispel the myths. The second thing that's important is the FDA has to act. We've had over well over 100 million Americans that are vaccinated. They're not going to come in now and say, well, uh, that shouldn't be, have been approved. Uh, you know, as Dr. Fauci says, they're dotting the I's and crossing the T's. We need that final FDA approval. They need to act. Do you think if the FDA approves that there would be any vaccine mandates in school districts or that would kick in after that full approval happens? Uh, not in Arkansas. Uh, I don't support a vaccine mandate. We can do it through education, uh, but I do expect uh, that uh, broader acceptance of the vaccine. Uh, I do expect that uh, some employers and in sensitive industries will require vaccines, but you have to have the FDA approval before uh, that is more broadly accepted. When you've been going around the state and, and, and encountering your constituents, a lot of times in this pandemic, people have said, we're all in this together. But you made a statement this week where you said some politicians are, are you know, playing to people's fears and not being compassionate. Are we all in this together based on your experience? Well, we're all in it in terms of trying to get through the pandemic, but uh, we have to have leaders that will step up and say, that's a myth that's not supported, and uh, you all need to listen rationally to people. We, we can't just give in to the loudest voice, which is 15% of people who's not going to take the vaccine regardless, that believes in the conspiracy theories that are totally irrational. And we have to have leaders that will be able to resist uh, that loudest voice in the room and talk common sense, compassion, and logic to them. Finally, uh, Governor, as we go out the door here, you served as chairman on the National Governors Association. The Democratic co-chairman was Andrew Cuomo. When Margaret was here and asked you about it, you said you're going to wait for that investigation to take place in New York. Investigation has taken place. A lot of people think he should step down. Do you have a view? Well, the investigation was very thorough. The allegations could not be more serious. No woman should have to go to the workplace and have to choose between a paycheck and being assaulted, particularly when it's in a public environment. Uh, so he either needs to resign in the face of this. Uh, certainly, if criminal charges are filed, he should resign. Uh, it's, it's a sad circumstance, but uh, that was a very credible review, and uh, the allegations are very serious, and uh, uh, that should not be tolerated in a public environment for sure, much less a private environment. Governor Hutchinson, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. In an exclusive interview for CBS This Morning and the Albany Times Union, national correspondent Jerika Duncan spoke to Brittany Camisso, 
It was going public for the first time since she was identified as executive assistant number one in the New York Attorney General's devastating report of sexual harassment charges against Governor Andrew Cuomo. In that report, Camisso said she was groped and sexually harassed by the governor and on Friday filed a criminal complaint against him with the Albany Sheriff's Office. Camisso is one of 11 women accusing the governor of sexual misconduct, and the state assembly is expected to finish an impeachment inquiry later this week. Cuomo denies the allegations and says he will not step down. Why did you file that criminal complaint with the sheriff's office? It was the right thing to do. The governor needs to be held accountable. And just so I'm clear again, mm -hmm. being held accountable to you mm -hmm. means seeing the governor charged with a crime. What he did to me was a crime. He broke the law. You can see more of Jerika's interview tomorrow on CBS This Morning. Face the Nation will be back in one minute. Stay with us. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's back to school time across America, so we turn to Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. He joins us from Meriden, Connecticut. Good morning, Mr. Secretary. I want to jump right in. The governors of Texas and Florida have enacted measure, measures to forbid mask mandates. You said you were going to talk to them. Have you talked to them? Or if you haven't, when you do, what will you say? Good morning, John. Yes, uh, we are ready 50 million students across the country are ready to return to school in person. We owe it to our students to safely reopen schools and make sure they have the best opportunity for learning, which we know as educators is in person. Um, and yes, it's an all hands on deck effort. I have calls out to many governors, including Governor Hutchinson, which uh, we just heard from. Um, and I did talk to Governor Abbott and I spoke to the commissioner in Florida. We need to work together to make sure our schools are safe for all students and for our staff. You make any progress in those phone calls? You know, I think what we're seeing across the country is we recognize uh, the importance of vaccinations. And uh, the president put a charge on all of us. Let's get our vaccination pop-up clinics set up in our schools where students feel comfortable going to get it. And uh, I think everyone across the country agrees on that. I believe strongly that we need to do everything, including our mitigation strategies, to make sure our students are safe. Um, the data is showing us that in places where they're not following those mitigation strategies, we're putting students at risk. We can't accept that. You said in a briefing this week that governors in those states of Texas and Florida are putting politics, they're letting politics interfere. Do you see no merit, though, to their argument that basically the school experience um, is, is impinged by wearing a mask? Listen, I, I understand the fatigue of wearing masks. I, I don't like wearing masks. I know my own children don't want to wear masks. Um, they are vaccinated, but we also understand that this is bigger than us. 
we're trying to keep infection rates low. And I think it's more dangerous for students to be home um, and have interrupt interrupted learning because of the decisions that we're making. We're clearly at a fork in the road in this country. You're either going to help students be in school, in person, and keep them safe, or the decisions you make are going to hurt students. That's where we are right now. And while I understand the argument around not wanting to wear masks because we're fatigued, it, it without question, student safety and staff safety come first. And your, your argument, as I take it, is that if you don't allow some flexibility or if you don't have masks in schools, you're going to see interruptions. I mean, there's a quarter of the country in which there are these blockages on mask mandates. Do you expect in that quarter of the country you could have schooling actually fully interrupted? I do believe that. I mean, the segment before, 18 students in a classroom had to be quarantined because uh, masks weren't being used and perhaps they were in close contact. We've done this before. The, the, uh, last year, we spent a whole year trying to safely reopen schools. This year, we have the benefit of the return to school roadmap that provides tips for families and for schools. The benefit of the American Rescue Plan, where resources are there to make sure our schools are safe. And then the vaccination efforts that are underway. We know what works. We've seen it work. We just have to follow the, uh, the guidance uh, from CDC and let our educators and education leaders lead. They know what to do to keep our schools safe. Let's give them the opportunity to do what's right. Let me get your insight on some uh, on the cost of this pandemic on schooling. The New York Times had an analysis they did with Stanford University that showed uh, that in 33 states, 10,000 local public schools lost at least 20 percent of their kindergartners. First of all, can you assess the gravity of that figure? And secondly, what are we going to do about it? Yeah, I, I saw that. And my experience last year in Connecticut as we reopened schools, uh, we, ex we saw also that uh, our kindergarten numbers were very low. Half of the number of students that didn't return to school were three, four, and five-year-olds. And what that tells us is that we must double down as educators to reach out to those families and share with them what we're doing to keep their children safe. You know, as I said before, as a parent, nothing is more important to me than the safety of my children. And I think our role now as educators is to communicate that schools are safe places. We know early childhood education is critically important to the success of our students. So having our students come into the classroom where they learn by doing, learning social and emotional skills by doing as three, four, five-year-olds is critically important. It's our job now to help parents feel comfortable with what we're doing to keep their children safe. One of the ways that parents can feel comfortable is increasing the vaccination rates, as you mentioned, particularly with uh, teachers. Um, what is your position on teachers' mandatory vaccination among teachers uh, in schools? Sure. Well, we're promoting the week of action where we're really getting the message across the country to get vaccinated when you're eligible. We're having pop-up clinics in schools and uh, just tomorrow, I'm going to be in uh, Kansas with the second gentleman promoting some of the vaccine efforts underway there. And for the educators, I feel strongly that if you're eligible to get vaccinated, get vaccinated. Do your part to make sure that we're all safe and that we can reopen schools without interruptions. Again, our students have suffered enough. It's time for all of us to do our part to keep our students and staff safe. Students need to be in the classrooms. That's where they learn best. Teachers Union represented Randy Weingarten on NBC uh, suggested that the teachers should get vaccinated. How helpful will that be in that cause? It's helpful. And, and quite frankly, I think 
we recognize as educators uh, across the country that we're going to get farther if we work together and that's what we're seeing across the country. Educators who have bent over backwards for our students this uh, last year are coming together to say let's do our part. Um, we know they, they uh, are lining up to get vaccinated. Ninety percent of the teachers across the country have gotten vaccinated. We're proud of that. We want to keep the efforts going. We want our youth to get vaccinated. Listen, and, and to those who are making policies that are preventing this, don't be the reason why schools are interrupted, why children can't go to extracurricular activities, why games are canceled. We need to do our part as leaders, like Governor Hutchinson is doing, to make sure that they have access to the decisions that they need to make to get their students safely back in school. All right, Secretary Cardona, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. If you're not able to watch the Full Face of the Nation, you can set your DVR, or we're available on demand. Plus, you can watch us through our CBS or Paramount Plus and we'll be right back with Miami-Dade County Public School Superintendent Alberto Carvalho, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and author Amanda Ripley. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress-them-on-the-third-date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome back to Face the Nation. The Miami-Dade County public school system is the fourth largest in the country. School starts there in two weeks. Superintendent Alberto Carvalho joins us from Miami. Miami, Mr. Superintendent, let me start with the governor. He signed a, an executive order banning mask mandates in schools. Uh, you have about 334,000 students. The governor threatened funding to your school system if there are, is a mask mandate. How are you weighing the governor's order and the health of your students. Good morning, John. Number one, we have been a, a school system that's been guided by science all along. We have navigated this awful pandemic uh, with the expert advice of uh, public health and medical experts, and we're not going to abdicate that position. We'll continue to be a district that's oriented by the expert advice of professionals. It is sad that currently in America we see this rhetorical narrative that's deeply influenced by politics rather than, uh, than medicine and the wise advice of those who know best what's in the best interest of our students and the professionals who teach them. But look, we are in a privileged position in Miami-Dade as we have time in our hands. Most of the school systems in Florida open tomorrow. We have two additional weeks to continue to negotiate, as Secretary Cardona indicated, a practicable, reasonable solutions that achieve two things. Number one, the appropriate protocols for a safe reopening of schools uh, without compromising the health uh, uh, insurances for our students and our teachers, while simultaneously avoiding uh, these punitive uh, defunding strategies uh, that could be a consequence of a defiance of the executive order or the emergency rules that were followed uh, after the publication of the executive order by the Department of Health and Education. When do you think you'll have to make the call? Uh, we hope to make the call immediately after uh, our last 
meeting with the health uh, task force that was convened by the school system over a year ago, which, include, uh, which includes uh, individuals like, uh, like uh, U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, uh, Dr. Eileen Marty. These are experts in field who have advised our school system and will continue to advise Miami-Dade County Public Schools. The governor says that uh, there is the science, but then there is also the mental health of the children, which he says will be significantly affected by wearing masks. How do you, as someone who has been in education uh, at the level you have, uh, how do you evaluate that assessment about masks and, and students? I think it's a fair I think it's a fair comment that we should have a balanced set of uh, protocols and safeguards that, uh, number one, ensure the health and well-being from a protective and preventive uh, perspective of our students and, and employees, side by side, obviously, with the psychological impacts that we hope to protect on, on a part of students. And uh, I think we are, uh, we are poised to be able to do that with technologies that we have in place, with much improved uh, contact tracing protocols, much improved quarantine uh, rules in place. Uh, we believe we can do this without, in a deleterious way, impacting the well-being, psychological, mental well-being of students, but also while protecting the health uh, and well-being uh, in the school environment. Look, yeah, I, I am one who is driven by parental choice. We have 75% of our students enrolled in non-traditional programs in Miami-Dade. We yeah. are one of the highest performing urban school systems in the country, and we hope to be able to negotiate a reopening of schools with protocols that, yep. number one, uh, provide protection for our students with masks while simultaneously avoiding financial consequences, Let me perhaps allowing some degree of parental opt-out uh, uh, provisions. You, as I understand it, were a part of a school uh, district-wide campaign to talk to households where they were reluctant about coming back to school. Uh, you apparently had a pretty good track record. You talked to 30 families, got 23 to agree to come back. Can you tell us what those conversations were like? Absolutely, John. Uh, look, I think across the country we have been ex extremely concerned uh, for a long time over the unfinished learning that we observed uh, in every single state associated with the pandemic and the social isolation. Uh, we were able to early on, based on uh, early assessments, uh, determine that there were communities of students, particularly English language learners, uh, fragile students who lived in poverty and students with disabilities, uh, who were uh, regressing in a very aggressive way. We identified those students, uh, we called the parents, and the parents, quite frankly, were making decisions driven by two factors. One, uh, work circumstances that put them in a position of keeping their kids at home, often older kids supervising younger kids, which was heartbreaking. Secondly, making decisions on the basis of uh, underlying conditions faced by the parents themselves, the relative or the child. Uh, we provided the assurance to the parents, and we were able to return to the schoolhouse thousands of students who are absolutely better served in a physical environment with a caring professional in front of them rather than uh, distance learning through virtual means. You grew up in Portugal in what you described as pretty dramatic poverty. Um, as you have these conversations and look at your community and what has been lost during the period of COVID, can you give me your assessment of those, the poorest, who have schooling as their route to possible opportunity in America, what the damage has been in that community? We know, John, that the greatest equalizer in our democratic country is the power of public education, where 90% of our children are educated. And that is, uh, you know, 
so true, particularly when you reference children in poverty, who make up 75% of our student population in Miami-Dade. And uh, we know uh, that schools offer that ramp of opportunity, that ramp of hope uh, for these kids. That is why all of our efforts are geared towards welcoming every one of our children back into a physical schooling reality come August 23rd with acceleration towards full potential for all kids, with longer school days, with summer school opportunities that we built this year, servicing, serving in excess of 75,000 students, providing additional coaches and interventionists, additional mental health uh, professionals to, quite frankly, provide a holistic approach that will address uh, the unfinished learning that thousands of kids across America have experienced. And that's why I tell you, John, we ought to pay less attention uh, to the loud voices that are often disconnected from reason and focus our attention on students, teachers, and healthy, protective environments while allowing, at the same time, the mental and social and emotional protections for students and some degree, obviously, of qualified parental choice. All right, Superintendent Carvalho, thank you so much for being with us. Good luck with your decision. We go now to former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, who is on the board of Pfizer and is the author of an upcoming book, Uncontrolled Spread, Why COVID-19 Crushed Us and How We Can Defeat the Next Pandemic. Good morning, Dr. Gottlieb. I want to start with a Harris poll. It showed that for the first time in two months, Americans think that the pandemic is getting worse rather than getting better. What do you think? Well, look, it's certainly getting worse. I think you're going to start to see improvements, particularly in the South. There is evidence that the rate of growth in the cases in the South is starting to decline. I think that this week you may see some of the states that have been the outbreak states start to tip over in terms of showing um, less cases on a daily basis. The rate of expansion of the epidemic is clearly slowing in states like Florida, Louisiana, Arkansas, Missouri. But at the same time, we now see the virus spreading to northern states. So cases are building in states like Illinois, Indiana, North Carolina. So this is an epidemic that's going to sweep across the nation at different points in time. I think the northern states are more impervious to the kind of spread we saw in the south, but they're not completely impervious. They have higher vaccination rates, there's been more prior infection, but there's still people who are vulnerable in those states. And, and the challenge right now is that the infection is going to start to collide with the opening of school. And we have seen that the schools can become sources of community transmission when you're dealing with more transmissible strains. We saw that with B117 in states like Michigan and Massachusetts, and Delta is far more transmissible than B117. So that creates a lot of risk that the spread in the northern states is going to start to collide with the opening of school. So let's update our thinking here about schools. Um, your argument is you saw it before even you saw spread in schools. Now there's a more transmissible variant, so you're likely to see more. But Governor DeSantis in Florida said that schools were, quote, a low-risk environment, unquote. Is that wrong? Well, look, schools um, aren't inherently safe. They can be made more safe if you take the proper steps. But we can't expect the same outcome that we saw earlier with respect to the schools, where we were largely able to control um, large outbreaks in the schools with a different set of behaviors. If we're going to change what we do in terms of the mitigation, how we approach the schools, we're going to withdraw masks. We're not going to engage in testing. We're not going to be potting students. We're not going to try to de-densify classes. We can expect a different result, especially with a more transmissible strain. 
I would enter the school year with a degree of caution and keep in place some of these measures and see how it goes, particularly in areas where there's higher prevalence. I wouldn't be withdrawing these things a priori before the school year gets underway, given the fact that we're dealing with a strain that we don't fully understand. This strain is clearly more transmissible. It's going to be harder to control in a school setting. Um, and it may be more pathogenic. Kids are getting sick with it. We don't know if they're getting sick at a higher rate or we're just infecting a whole lot of kids right now. I can't think of a business right now that would put 30 unvaccinated people in a confined space without masks and keep them there for the whole day. No business would do that responsibly, and yet that's what we're going to be doing in some schools. So I think we need to enter the school year with a degree of humility and prudence. In, the, in keeping that in mind, that humility and prudence, we've talked a great deal about masks. What else should schools be doing to stay on top of this new variant in this time when kids are coming back? Well, look, with respect to masks, first of all, I'd still be looking at higher quality masks. The Utah governor recently announced that he's making available to every school KN95 masks. Now, they're not mandating masks in Utah, and I think most governors will not be mandating masks, but they're leaving discretion to local officials to implement masks, depending on what the local circumstances are. And I think that that's the prudent step that we should be doing. The other thing schools could be doing is operationalizing testing on a regular basis. There's a lot of money, um, federal money, that's been flowing into states to support testing regimes. Now, a lot of states have had a hard time standing that up, but some have done it quite well. California is going to be testing all students. Um, they've created their own lab. North Carolina, Maryland, Ma Massachusetts have turned to private labs. The Broad is doing a lot of testing for New England states. Um, in New York City, they're doing saliva testing on all students with the help of Mount Sinai, the uh, university, a medical center that I'm affiliated with. So a lot of states are going to be doing testing, but there's still a lot of states that won't be. And I think that that's a very prudent step. The other thing that's very important is, is potting, keeping kids in defined social pods so that if you do have a case, you don't have to quarantine the entire school. You can track exposure. Right now, um, the former Surgeon General, my friend Jerome Adams, pointed out that many schools require parents to report if their kids have lice, but don't require to report if their kids contract COVID. We need to turn that around. We need to still be vigilant heading into this school year. And I think from a standpoint of parents, what they can be doing is checking local prevalence, um, trying to get high-quality masks. If prevalence is high, you know, sending kids to school with masks, even if it's not required, and monitoring symptoms and maybe doing home testing as well, and avoiding unnecessary congregate settings. So if you can avoid activities, after-school activities that are done indoors without masks for the time being, try to do that. This is going to be a short-lived wave of infection. It might be our last wave of infection. We have the means to protect ourselves. I think we ought to adhere to them. Let me ask you now, for parents who are considering getting their kids vaccinated, so those would be over 12 years old, a lot of parents have expressed nervousness in this regard. What would your advice be to a parent who is weighing that decision about getting their, their child vaccinated? Well, talk to your pediatrician. Vaccination rates are still low among kids. In, in the 12 to 15 age group, about 30% of children have been vaccinated. In the um, 16 to 17 age group, about 40%. Um, now's the time if you're going to vaccinate your child in advance of the school year to do it. I think for most parents, you should talk to your doctor because this isn't just a binary decision between do I vaccinate or don't I vaccinate. There's different strategies that doctors might recommend for different children in terms of how you vaccinate kids. Some doctors I know are telling parents maybe go with one dose for now uh, in lower risk kids. Some doctors are spacing it apart. So pediatricians are making judgment calls in terms of how they approach this. So I think parents who are uncomfortable or reluctant to get their children vaccinated really should afford themselves the opportunity to talk to a physician and see if there's a way to tailor approach that can address any concerns that they may have. 
The FDA is now, uh, or, or the administration is now moving to your position on boosters, which is that it should be, uh, there should be boosters for the immunocompromised. We also think about nursing homes in this context. Can you tell us, given that there are going to be boosters coming, are they going to come in time for Delta? What's your sense of when somebody who needs a booster might be able to actually get it? Yeah, so the reporting is that the FDA is going to make a decision on immunocompromised patients within a week and maybe make a, a decision on older patients, patients over the age of 65, maybe as early as September. I think, unfortunately, it's going to become, come a little bit too late for this Delta wave because by the time you actually make that decision, then CDC issues a recommendation, then you start operationalizing a booster campaign. Um, you're talking about maybe late October at the earliest, if the decision comes in September, that you can start really getting a sizable number of people boosted. It takes time to get that stood up and get people into the doctor's office to get those injections. And it's going to take a couple of weeks for the immunity that the boosters offer to mature. So it's something that we should be considering, I think, right now, particularly with immunocompromised patients, not just people with pre-existing health conditions, but also people in congregate settings like nursing homes, long-term care facilities who are vulnerable. All right, Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. As always, we'll be back in a moment. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From politics to policy, it seems a lot of debates these days have become filled with toxicity and outrage to the point where we are no longer listening to each other. Amanda Ripley is the author of High Conflict, Why We Get Trapped and How We Can Get Out and has some ideas on how we can transform dissension in this country. It's a tall order, Amanda. But we're going to start with defining our terms. What does high conflict mean? So high conflict can start small, but it becomes an all-consuming us-versus-them feud that sort of takes on a life of its own. So it doesn't operate according to the normal rules of conflict. Anything, any counter, any intuitive thing you do in high conflict usually will backfire, right? So it's important to understand that in high conflict, we all make a lot of mistakes. We're making them right now. Uh, as you can see, in all kinds of ways, right? Um, so in a high conflict, people behave differently. We, sent, we tend to get really certain of our own moral superiority, um, and we make a lot of mistakes about the other side. So the, the key thing to understand is that we have to do the counterintuitive thing, and we have to do it with great care. The counterintuitive thing being opening, basically being more empathetic about the other side, just as your high conflict instincts are telling you that you want to bury the other side in the deep shale. Exactly. I mean, there's a few things you want to not do, right, that, that your body wants to do. Yeah. So a few of those are sort of the tripwires that tend to lead to high conflict. It's important to understand. One of those is humiliation. Don't humiliate your opponents. Uh, whether you intend to or not, humiliation is the nuclear bomb of the emotions, as the psychologist Evelyn Lindner puts it. And you will do yourself a great disservice, right? So calling names, that sort of thing. Um, Nelson Mandela has a great quote where he says, there is no one more dangerous than one who has been humiliated, even when you do so rightly. <laughs> so I love the end of that quote. Uh, also, you want to distance yourself to the degree possible from conflict entrepreneurs 
These are people or pundits or platforms that intentionally exploit conflict for their own ends. So bad faith actors, essentially. Yeah, people who really delight in every twist and turn of the conflict. And right now, we tend to amplify those voices, right, on social media and other places. Um, and if you can't distance yourself from the conflict entrepreneurs in your life, you want to try to redirect their energy to the degree possible on something more constructive. And you actually studied the kind of structural nature of these high conflicts. So anybody who's listening can think of mask debates, uh, vaccine debates, uh, debates over things that are done and settled, like who won the last election. We all know that President Biden did, and yet there are virulent debates about a fantasy world in which he didn't. So everything I just said probably infuriated some number of people. So you studied the structural parts of this. Um, give me a little bit more about how we unwind from that structural, those structural uh, forces. Yeah, so it turns out that how we behave in political high conflict is not different from how we behave in high conflict divorces, right? Or other kinds of high, high conflict all over the world. You know, I followed people who were really stuck in conflict, whether they were politicians or gang members or even guerrilla fighters and civil wars. And it's, it's always the same behavior. It's not about the facts. It's not about the original cause of the dispute. What starts to happen in every high conflict is we have a lot of the wrong fights with the wrong people, and we don't have the fights we most need to have, right? So every high conflict has the thing it seems to be about, Vaccines, masks, et cetera, right? And then the thing it's really about, which is the understory of the conflict, which usually, not always, is about fear, humiliation, a need to belong and to matter, right? So those are the things you want to try to get to if you're going to make any progress so that you can have the right fight. Because the truth is, we need good conflict in this country, sure. right? Like, there are a lot of fights that we need to have, but we need to have them in a way that they don't destroy us, right? Right. Founded the country on the idea of if we have good conflict, it'll keep us from going into the streets and having actual fisticuffs. Right. You need to channel that. I mean, people need to push each other and, and, and defend themselves and be pushed and be challenged, right? Like, that's how we get growth. So in the toolkit to try to avoid high conflict, and the reason you want to do that is to create collective... Uh, solutions, the first thing to do is think about what is this co high conflict really about? Exactly. And again, just to be um, clear, you're not talking about debate and argument. You're talking about a new level, right. which is just, uh, so in that new level, you want to figure out what the debate is about and then what's, what's next in the things I would try to practice. So another thing you would want to do is resist the binary, resist the urge to divide the world cleanly into two camps. That is not possible. It is very tempting, right? Uh, but don't do it. You just catch yourself doing it because what happens is we make a lot of mistakes. We miss big opportunities when we do that, right? And so you cannot divide, you cannot put 75 million people in this country um, who, who all call themselves Republicans or Democrats in one bucket. That's just madness, right? Uh, we are all many things. Try to speak to another identity outside of the conflict, right? As a New Yorker or a Californian or a uh, you know, Floridian or a parent is a very good one because you see, and we saw this on your show today, in every high conflict, it is always kids who suffer the worst of it, right? Everyone suffers in high conflict, but kids suffer the worst. So speaking to people's alternate identities outside of the conflict is a very powerful maneuver. You, you talk to uh, academics who study conflict and keying on your idea about binary decisions, the complexity, when people recognize the complexity of things, that helps them get out of their 
binary instincts. Is that right? Right. So in a time of high conflict, we all get oversimplified, right, in our perception of the world. So the more you can amplify and surface real complexity, right, like real complexity of humans, the more people become open to information they didn't want to hear. What you're trying to do is revive curiosity in a time of false simplicity, right? And once you do that, you start to see people's whole expression changes. They start to say more nuanced things. They admit to more internal doubt and, and, and uncertainty. All right, Amanda Ripley, thank you so much. That's it for us today. And today also marks the end of my summer stint in Margaret's chair. Thanks to all of you viewers out there for your trust and to the extraordinary Face the Nation team who make this show what it is. Margaret will be back from maternity leave soon, and I'll be back soon enough, just in a different chair. For Face the Nation, I'm John Dickerson. Today's guests were Arkansas Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona, Miami-Dade County Public Schools Superintendent Alberto Carvalho, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, and author Amanda Ripley. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. And you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our digital network, CBSN, at 10.30 a.m., 1 p.m., and 4 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.